44, verse 1. Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks, we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves." So he said, Now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. And Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Amen. In this chapter, chapter 44 of Genesis, we have a continuation of the return of the brothers of Joseph. They returned to Egypt the second time in the previous chapter, chapter 43, and now they are about to be sent back. But in sending them back, we have a test, another test or final test that Joseph uh, conducts on his brothers, whether they are honest and truthful men and whether they are dedicated men, dedicated to loving one another and doing what's right. He's testing them in this chapter. Then in chapter 45, verses 1 to 15, he will reveal himself. He's going to disclose who he actually is to them because he cannot keep his um, composure knowing that Benjamin is the one that has been found to be the culprit, which we'll find in the latter part of our chapter 44. So this narrative from 43, verse 1 to 45 15 encompasses their return, the brothers' return to Egypt, and then Joseph's test of them, and then Joseph's disclosure of who he is to them. 
That's where we find ourselves in chapter 44, in the middle of this narrative. So then, in the first part of the chapter, Joseph tests his brothers. And this is how it happens. Verse 1, he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Now, here, the food would be something that would show the abundance and graciousness of Joseph. But putting each man's money in the mouth of his sack would be a repeat of what happened the first time, as though they had stolen it. He is presenting a test in that regard. Also in verse 2, And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. The silver cup from which Joseph drinks, and he says uh, that in, in the following um, narrative, that it's the one from which I drink. This silver cup, a valuable cup, because it's made of silver, or at least coated in silver, this cup put in the youngest. The youngest, we find out, is jo- uh, Benjamin, verse 12. Verse 12, with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Intentionally, Joseph makes Benjamin the culprit. None of them know anything about this. And so, and even Benjamin's money is put back in his sack. So the steward did as Joseph told him. The house steward knows what's happening He understands, and he is willing to do what Joseph tells him to do. He's willing to be a participant in this test of the brothers. Then, verse 3, As soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. Sent away, business as usual. They don't know what's about to happen, but Joseph has set them up in this test. Verse 4, They had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? He lets them go some distance away, giving them some time, perhaps to discover on their own, perhaps not, but also some time for them to depart and for an investigation to to take place in the house or in the palace about where that cup is for them to have some time to look before the house steward is sent. And notice the accusation. Verse 4. Why have you repaid evil for good? Evil for good. In this case, Joseph is assumed to be an Egyptian. His house steward also assumed to be an Egyptian, at least in the eyes of Joseph's brothers. They don't know his true identity. The Hebrew men, they are also accused here. And so notice, Egyptians and the Hebrew understand it is wrong to repay evil for good. And what is the evil? Theft of the silver cup. And what is the good? The good was that they were supplied with plenty of food, They were granted their negotiation of presenting money and giving some food. 
uh, to them so that they could survive in the land of Canaan. And in that regard, and also remember in the previous chapter, they had a feast at the table of Joseph, and they were all astonished um, about that. So there were some good things done by Joseph to them. And they all are under the assumption that no one should repay evil for good. Because they don't say, well, that's a false ethic. They don't say anything like that. Everybody assumes, whether they are believers or not, whether they are Jewish or not, Hebrew people or not, it is a common understanding. This would be an evidence of, the, of natural law, the conscience that God has written on the heart of every human. Romans 2, 14 to 16 teaches that about natural law. Verse 5, Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. The, the, the house steward says that his Lord drinks from this cup, which would not be any surprise, drinking from a silver or golden cup uh, for those in nobility and in the court and those who are um, of the kingly line. They would do this because they have the means to do it. They would do it. That's not no surprise. But then... And that's the physical part. But the spiritual part is in the next clause, which he indeed uses for divination. Divination, according to Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14, is a sin. Divination is a sin. It's wrong. It's wrong to consult the dead or spirits. It's wrong to seek to have knowledge Forbidden knowledge, forbidden because God hasn't revealed that knowledge through his word or through his prophets. If he hasn't, then it would be a sin, like it says in Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14. Well, in this case, why would he say this? Why would he say this? This chapter has been taken by interpreters, one, to say that Joseph is sinning and doing wrong in presenting this test to his brothers. It's wrong to be deceitful. It's wrong to not show his true identity and true motives. So Joseph is sinning all along in this chapter. And others will also say that Joseph practiced divination, that he actually did practice divination. Others will say that this word for divination is not really divination, but a test or um, one to examine or to use discernment. He uses for discernment or for testing, but that doesn't fit the context. It doesn't fit the context at all. What does fit the context? We already saw earlier in chapter... 43, 43 and uh, 42 and 43, where the brothers are told that they need to be tested. You will be tested. 42 and 15, 42, 15, 42, 11, 
16, 19, 11, 16, and 19, and 20, he clearly tells them, I want to know, I want to figure out if you are honest men. He's telling them that that is his purpose. He wants to know if they are honest, truthful men. So in that way, it is not a a sin for him to test them because he's telling them, giving them some idea of what he's doing, and therefore it is not a sin. So it seems that the best interpretation of divination is he is pretending to be a diviner. He's pretending to be a diviner because this is also a part of his cover or a part of his decoy so that they don't discover who he is, thinking that Joseph is an Egyptian. And of course, the Egyptians and all the, all the pagans, they practice divination. That is simply, I think, what's happening here. He's saying it because he's using it as a cover for his identity. That's all. Not that he actually does practice divination. We know from previous chapters, starting in chapter 37, that Joseph is a prophet. He's a prophet because he had his own dreams, which God gave to him and interpreted for him. And then later, in chapter 40, he, 40 and 41, he interprets the dreams of others, both the co-prisoners and also of Pharaoh in chapters 40 and 41. So he's a true prophet of God, not practicing divination. Right. Not at all. Verse 6. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks, we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house. They speak in unison here. It simply says, they said to him, verse 7, they, the brothers, said to him, the house steward, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Why is it that this accusation would be or should be presented? Your servants have nothing to do with things like this. And what's the evidence of that? Verse 8. Behold the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks, we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. Remember, this is what we discussed with you, that before we went to Joseph's house, or as we are approaching it, we approached you and told you, listen, we don't know how this happened, but our money is right here. And then the house steward says, it's okay, it's okay. And and assured them that there was no problem with that. So that is true. These brothers are being honest about that. And they brought it all the way back from the land of Canaan. They could have easily left it there or brought only enough for this trip, this second trip. So if that's the case, how then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? How is it that you would think that we are thieves and we would want that silver cup, just that silver cup. Why would we want that? We wouldn't want it because of the money. And also we wouldn't want it because we don't practice divination. We don't believe in divination. 
The household of Jacob doesn't believe in that. In fact, he expects or told them way back in chapter 35 to get rid in his household in chapter 35 to get rid of all of their foreign gods, which implies that's in 35 verse 4, 35, 1 to 4, where he is, he says, put away the foreign gods which are among you, 35, 2. And purify yourselves and change your garments. Verse 4, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. So there's no desire for divination either. There has been a change in the household of Jacob since that time. And this is also a truthful statement. The brothers are also making a truthful statement that they don't want to steal. They have no desire to steal silver or gold, especially the silver cup for divination. Verse 9, because of this fact or these facts, verse 9, with whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. They are so confident in their honesty. They are so confident They happen to be wrong because they are being tested. And so it's happening without their knowledge. We know that. But they are confident in their integrity, which is something that's good. It's good that they are confident in their integrity. They have a clean, clear conscience before God. That's the way it should be. In terms of actual knowledge of transgression and guilt because of that. That's the way we all should be. Okay, verse 10. So he said, Now let it also be according to your words, he with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. They are so confident they are willing to die, or the one is willing to die, whoever it might be, and the rest would be slaves. But in verse 10, he mitigates it, the house steward mitigates it by saying, no, only one of you will be a slave and the rest of you will be innocent. So there's no need to, to put everyone to death. And besides, generally speaking, across cultures, even ancient cultures, thievery is not worthy of death. When the authorities find a thief, then he is typically not put to death. Now, if the circumstances are a violent circumstance, then that's a different scenario. But just thievery itself is not usually worthy of death. And even this steward knows that. So he is saying, no, no, we don't need to go to that extreme. All we need to do is have one of you be the slave, whoever has the cup. And the rest of you are innocent. He's assuming that the one did it on his own. He's giving the brothers the impression the one did it on his own and didn't tell the rest of the brothers. That's why all the brothers are saying in unison, no, no, we didn't do anything. Verse 11. Then they hurried, each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Verse 
they hurried to do this because they were so confident that they had done nothing wrong. They were eagerly cooperative with this authority, the authority from the house of Joseph. And when they searched, he, he searched, the steward did this purposely, because it says he, verse 12, and he searched, and remember in the time when they had that feast at the table of Joseph, that they also sat oldest to youngest, and so it was clear what the birth order was of all of the sons. Well, here too, he starts with the oldest, with Reuben, and he ends with Benjamin, on purpose, because he is um, intensifying the situation, yeah. intensifying the suspense of what's happening here. And Benjamin is called the youngest, which is true, according to Genesis chapters 29 and 30. This is where it's recorded um, about the birth of his sons, Jacob's sons, and one daughter in Genesis 29 to 30. And Benjamin is the youngest. Benjamin is likely at this point 32 years old. Likely 32. He is the younger brother of Joseph. And it's probably the case, probable that he was about seven years younger than Joseph. By 45, 45, we have chapter 45 and verse Six, it says, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. This is, remember, the same incident from 44 all the way into chapter 45, verse 15. When Joseph discloses himself, he's telling his brothers about these years, years of famine. So if that's the case, Joseph was 17 when he was sold as a slave. He was 30 when he became the ruler of Egypt. There were seven years of plenty, two years of famine, according to 45 verse 6, when he discloses himself. So he is 39 years old at that point. That's why the estimate is Benjamin is likely about 32 years old. Verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, clothes, and each, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. They tore their clothes, which was typical in expressing grief. When expressing grief or sorrow, either for one's sins or for, for some tragedy that has occurred, when something that's gone wrong has occurred, it's typical to tear the clothing. This happened actually also earlier in chapter 37. Chapter 37, when the report of Joseph being sold, being lost first and then sold, is mentioned. 37.29. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his Garments. Remember, Reuben was planning to spare Joseph. But it was Judah, 
Judah, who had the idea to sell him as a slave. Look at verse 26. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Also, when Jacob heard about this loss of Joseph, it says in 37, 34. So Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Why are they tearing their clothes in chapter 44? Because they have found that they were discovered to have the silver cup and the silver cup was in the possession of Benjamin, the favored, endeared, endearing son of Jacob because he was born to Jacob when Jacob was old. That's So then they cooperate and return to the city, verse 13. Now, the exchange between Judah and Joseph. From 14 to 34, we have Judah being highlighted. We'll study the first part of it in 14 to 17 at this time. 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. Judah and his brothers. We'll see in 14, it says that in 16, so Judah said, verse 18, then Judah approached him. And that continues until the end of the chapter. Judah is the primary spokesman. He's the leader of whatever interactions they have with Joseph. It doesn't say how Judah was selected. It doesn't say anything like that. However, it is a contrast. Judah's behavior from verse 14 to 34 in chapter 44 is in contrast, directly opposite of his behavior in 37, 26 to 27. The passage we just read where he was the one who said, let's sell him as a slave. That was 22 years ago. Let's sell him as a slave. Now we're going to see his values and his disposition towards his own brother or brothers is going to be completely different, which shows he initially had hatred of his brother and now he shows love for his brothers and even the youngest one, Benjamin, and his father, because if Benjamin is lost, he'll tell us later, our father's going to die. It's just going to be too hard for him, too sorrowful for him, and he's going to die. So Judah speaks up. And this is going to be uh, proof of Judah's repentance. He's got a different frame of mind and a different heart now. So when they approach Joseph's house, when they come to Joseph, he was still there. And why? Because this is all a setup to expose them and to disclose himself in chapter 45. They fell to the ground before him. Now, they fall to the ground in honor and respect since he is a man of 
authority and a man to be respected. They're not falling down to worship him. We've seen that in earlier chapters, that the patriarchs and, and several others throughout the Old Testament, whenever one who is subordinate to a superior approaches the, the superior, they bow down in respect to show the honor in that situation, show the superior honor. And that's all that they mean here. 15, and Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? What is this deed? And the deed is this accusation that they stole the silver cup. He's assuming, rightfully, that they would know that that's wrong. It's wrong to steal. And don't you know that when you do that, you take away my divination? Why would you want to harm me? Don't you pray and and worship your God or gods in the way that you do? I do also. So why would you deprive me of my benefit or of my blessing of praying and consulting my gods or my spirits. Verse 16. So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. They acknowledge their guilt. And in this case, we we see an example of unintentional sin or unintentional crime is considered a crime. And everybody understands that. Judah understood that. An unintentional crime or an unintentional sin is sin. That's why they have no arguments. They have no arguments. And how can we justify ourselves? Which means they understood justification in the legal sense. Justification. Justification or exoneration, vindication for a crime or um, innocence in relation to that crime. They understood that concept. That's important comment because there are many... uh, heretical commentators of the Bible that say justification by faith, by grace through faith in Christ, is an impossibility in the Bible because the ancient people did not understand justification. Because that's, that's a legal concept and they didn't understand it. They were very primitive. <laughs> um, also, if it's in the New Testament, maybe so, it certainly cannot be present in the Old Testament. Because that's way back in history, and there's no possibility of that whatsoever. However, we see the word used here in verse 16, and it is before the judge of the land. Basically, the Supreme Court of the land. They're talking to the Supreme Court justice of the land. Joseph, right? So they understand it. And even the steward in verse 10 says, you shall be innocent. If you don't have it, whoever doesn't have it, you shall be innocent. So, innocence or guilt, justification or condemnation. 
They all understood those concepts. And there are many more examples of like this throughout the Old Testament. Also, in 16, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. They understand that God is a God of retribution. He's a God of recompense. And whatever they have committed in the past, now it is brought forward, and now they are being held culpable for what they have done in the past. And it is very likely that they mean selling their brother. Selling their brother. It's in the context of losing another brother, Benjamin. So it's likely that the just recompense, the equal payment, has to do with the brother selling Joseph in an earlier in the earlier passages that's what they mean god has found out the iniquity of your servants then they offer to be joseph's slaves verse 16 also by the way if your bible doesn't say slave it should say slave, not servant. It should say slave because they're not talking about being a servant in terms of being a court official, uh, someone under the king. It is talking about actual slavery, servitude, bondage. It's talking about that. That is the context of this passage and other places uh, of a similar context. Slavery. Verse 17, but he said, Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Well, 17, Joseph explains that he understands justice. All of you didn't do it. One of you did it. So I understand justice. Just one of you has to be my slave. And then the rest of you go in peace, go in innocence, go on your way, in your happy way back to your father. We also see here that he mentions father. They didn't mention father, did they? No. So far in this chapter, the brothers didn't mention the father. Joseph mentioned the father. Go back to your father because he is, he is step by step about to disclose himself, step by step revealing more of who they are. And that's going to trigger Judah in our next passage, 18 to 34. It's going to trigger Judah to speak up on behalf of his father and to offer himself in place of Benjamin. Okay, now just to highlight a couple of points in what we have just read and and seen here. One, let's highlight the fact that it says in uh, verse 16, no, no, verse 15. It was in both in verse 5 and 15, this divination that Joseph said he uses the cup for divination. Is it wrong to test others? Is it wrong to examine others to see if they are honest men, if they are genuine or not? Is it wrong to do that? In this case, 
in this major scenario that we have, is it wrong to do it? If we say Joseph sinned, then we have a bigger problem, a big dilemma on our hands. Let me show that to be the case. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Before Jesus fed the 5,000, when they discovered the need, John 6, we'll read verses 5 and 6. John 6, 5 and 6. 6, 5. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? If you are Philip, what are you thinking? Well, there's no place. We're in a barren territory. It's a long way to get some food. And there are so many people here. There is no way to go back and forth and transport and even to pay money for all these people to get food and to organize all of this. And it's already late in the day. Right? That's what Philip is thinking. Verse 6. And this he was saying to test him. To test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. Jesus gives Philip the impression that it's up to Philip and, and Philip's ideas on how to solve the problem. But that's not what Jesus intended. He is testing Philip, but he's not going to depend on Philip. No way. He's not going to depend on Philip. And then he proceeds to produce a miracle. So he tested him. Okay, then now let's go to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. When Jesus is arrested, when he's being arrested, let's begin at 18.3. John 18.3. We'll read 18.3 to seven, three to seven. There are two verses in particular. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also who was betraying him, was standing with them. When therefore he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, therefore, he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Now, why in, in, in the world did Jesus ask them, Whom do you seek? Jesus knew sure they were seeking for him. Right? Why would he ask them then? Whom do you seek? giving them the impression that they don't, uh, or Jesus doesn't know what's going on? No, he does know what's going on, but he wants them to say they are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. They're trying to arrest Jesus the Nazarene. In verse 5 and in verse 7, Jesus the Nazarene. So when that comes out of their mouth, Jesus will use that to say, verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. 
If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. So let the rest of my disciples go. Don't bother them. And that was no accident either, verse 9, that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Luke 24, Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, Cleopas and another one. Luke 24, 28. When they dialogue about what had happened recently in Jerusalem, these two disciples still don't know with whom they are discussing this matter. And he, Christ, explains the prophecies of him, his death and resurrection, from the Old Testament. We pick it up at verse 28, 24, 28. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he would go farther. He acted as though he would go farther. Why did he act as though he would go farther and separate from them? Because he was trying to draw out their desires. Verse 29. And they urged him saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. Did he not know what he was intending to do? Of course. Yes, he knew what he was intending to do. But he was drawing out their sincerity, their eagerness to continue to dialogue with him about the interpretations of the scriptures and the events of Jerusalem. Then they finally recognize by the time this narrative is over that they were not talking to anybody. Um, Because it says in 35, and they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Eventually they know. But meantime... This dialogue had to take place. So there, again, we have Jesus testing. Let's also see that all of us are supposed to be engaged in testing people. All of us are supposed to engage in testing people. First, let's see in reference to leadership and then generally speaking. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3. 3, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, there are qualifications presented for the pastor, overseer, elder of the church. And then in verses 8 to 13, for those of deacons. And it says explicitly in 3.10, And let these also first be tested. Be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. If they are beyond reproach. Correct? Well, that was also said of the elder pastor in verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. But that cannot be done in a moment, 
in a week, in a month. It takes time to test and to observe the character of the man who might be qualified to be both pastor in verses 1 to 7 or deacon in verses 8 to 13. They must be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. What about one who is newly repentant? What about one who is newly repentant? Now let's speak more generally of that. In Luke 15, Luke 15, the prodigal son, the prodigal son. Remember what his sins were? The prodigal son's sins? His sins were... Uh, squandering his wealth with harlots. He squandered his wealth with harlots. That's what he did. He was mingling with the loose people of the foreign land, and he squandered his money with harlots and probably with other sins as well. It says that in 15 verse 30. 1530. Well, the father, when he sees his son, this prodigal son, return, he embraces him quickly. And false interpreters of this passage say, whenever somebody repents, we should embrace him quickly and restore him quickly. Now, certainly embrace quickly to celebrate, but it does not say restore to offices and responsibilities, restore to privileges as before. In Luke 15, 11, 15, 11 to 32, it says nothing of that sort. Nope. Does it say that the father, the joyful father, made this prodigal son, the repentant son, now treasurer of his estate? Nope. Does it say that he made him overseer of all the women of the household? No way. <laughs> no. It doesn't say that. But false interpreters say, well, if somebody repents, you have to just take his word for it and restore him. No, you don't. No. It, we do need to restore <coughs> the relationship part, <coughs> the friendship part, the fellowship part. We restore that part and don't exclude him. But meantime, we have to keep this repentant one under observation. We don't make him, like in this case, treasurer and overseer of all the women. Not at all. He's not going to be the director of the women's ministries of the church. Correct? No. That is absurd. It's absolutely absurd to do so. Okay, then, in terms of testing generally, we need to do so based on the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, 11 to 14. 5, 11. Concerning Him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food 
is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The word of righteousness is the solid food that we all need. We must have it to practice and to train to discern good and evil. We cannot know the difference between good and evil unless we know the word of righteousness. It is the standard. We use it as a measuring tool to discern everything. That means to test whenever someone says that he is a believer. Lots of people say, I am a believer. And they even sing the song, I am a believer. But they are not necessarily believers. It depends on their virtues, their character, their godliness. Also, 1 John 4, 1 John 4, 1 to 6, commands us to test. 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses, confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We must test the spirits, verse 1. We must know who is from God and who is not. Because there are many false prophets. Many false prophets in the world. Well, what is the ultimate test? Well, those who have the word of Christ and the spirit of Christ are preaching and teaching that word of Christ by the spirit of Christ. And if they listen to the Spirit of Christ and the Word of Christ by the messengers of Christ, verse 6, then they are from God. Yeah. If they don't, they're not from God. It's as easy as that. And John wrote so that things might be plain. Yeah. Things might be obvious and evident. He said in 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Right. In order that you may know that you have eternal life. And in 3.10, 3.10, he says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Right. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.